you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. We're going to take our opening segment today to update you on the latest with the scandal-ridden L.A. City Council. As I'm sure you know by this point, three uh, current and former members of the City Council, plus a former uh, top labor official in Los Angeles County, were in a conversation a year ago in which multiple racist, demeaning, uh, homo-hostile comments were made during the course of that conversation. Uh, Nuri Martinez, uh, who made the most uh, negative comments in the course of that conversation, at least that were released on tape, uh, resigned a couple of days after the Los Angeles Times released excerpts of that recording. Uh, but uh, calls for council members uh, Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon to resign have not been heeded. In fact, yesterday, Councilmember DeLeon went on both Univision as well as the CBS-owned stations uh, KCBS2 and KCAL9, uh, giving a lengthy interview saying that he would not step down. Uh, here's what Councilmember De Leon um, was asked about the comments that he himself made on that leaked recording. I, I was completely shocked. Obviously, but you made a joke about it. The, her something like a, a purse right after that. So, I mean, is that really shock? The, the comment was directed more towards Nuri Martinez and her penchant for having luxury accessories and luxury goods. It was a joke towards her and not towards. Mike Bonnet's family, but nonetheless, I apologize to Mike Bonnet's family uh, profusely. Uh, of course, the reference was, though, to the young son of Mike Bonin, L.A. City Council member, about the son being with his father aboard uh, a float in the Pride Parade. Now, in interviews uh, with those multiple news outlets, the council member also doubled down in saying he would not resign. I have to do the hard work. I have to regain the trust of my colleagues. It won't be easy. I understand that. And that's why the past week I've taken a lot of reflection with my family, with my staff, with one of my closest friends. This has been very, very painful. Very, very, very painful. And I'm sorry to all of my colleagues. I'm sorry to my family, to my Bonin's family, to all the communities who have been hurt. Uh, by that meeting, I, I failed. The council member represents uh, a swath of northeast Los Angeles and part of downtown L.A. So you've got communities like Boyle Heights, El Sereno, Lincoln Heights, uh, and Eagle Rock. Uh, here's what he said about representing his district as a reason for staying. It's not about me. It's about City District 14, a district that's been underrepresented, that has gone through uh, much difficulty uh, in the past without no political representation. Mm -hmm. It's about a district that was devastated, eviscerated by the coronavirus. We had the highest infection and mortality rate. It is a district that is on the brink of adding more individuals, you know, into the homelessness ranks uh, because of the expiration of the eviction moratorium. That's Council Member Kevin DeLeon in conversation with KCBS KCAL here in Los Angeles. Joining us is, for the next several days, the acting mayor of Los Angeles, where while Mayor Eric Garcetti is traveling in Argentina. Uh, joining us is Paul Krikorian. Uh, he's the president of the L.A. City Council, but during the times when the mayor is away, he is the acting mayor. Thank you so much for, for joining us, sir. We appreciate it. First, your response to what Councilmember De Leon said in these interviews yesterday. Well, um, look, I want to make it absolutely as clear as I possibly can. Um, we have been calling for Kevin De Leon's immediate resignation. Uh, I continue to call for his immediate resignation. Um, apologies are not nearly enough 
to make up for not only the damage that's already been caused, but the damage that continues to be caused to the city for as long as he continues to uh, refuse to heed the call of people throughout this city and people throughout this country. Um, he has talked about the need for representation in his district and how that is motivating him. Uh, the best way to ensure effective representation for his district is for him to resign immediately so we can set a special election and get a full-time council member to represent that district. Now, it's not about him. This is about the future of the city of Los Angeles and the best interest of the 14th district. Council member Mike Bonin, about uh, whose uh, son uh, he, he was referencing the accessorizing, Mike Bonin said uh, in response to the interviews by Kevin DeLeon yesterday, Kevin DeLeon's comments are gaslighting of the highest order. He describes cruel, dehumanizing remarks about a child as flippant. He said he should have intervened as if he were a mere bystander to a racist conversation in which he played a central and ignominious role. Kevin DeLeon has the opportunity to atone and seek forgiveness one day from all of Los Angeles and from the black community and from my son in particular. But that starts with his resignation from the city council. No matter what he says today, his comments on that tape make clear he is unfit for office in this city. He cannot be part of the healing as long as he refuses to resign. His stubborn refusal to do what everyone else knows is necessary is deepening the wound he has inflicted on Los Angeles. Um, one question I have for you, um, Council President Krikorian, is um, did uh, Councilmember De Leon make a request of either you or or the previous acting Council President O'Farrell that he not have to come to council meetings for the next few weeks? So I, I have not been in direct communication with Mr. Darion. I've reached out to him, have not spoken directly with him. I did receive a letter yesterday uh, in which he asked to be excused from council meetings. Um, I, I have not yet responded to, to that letter. Um, what's clear to me is that he, he must not be at council meetings, um, but the best way for that to happen and the cleanest way for that to happen for uh, the people of the district and for the future is for him to simply resign today. If, um, it, it's imperative. If he doesn't show for the next several meetings and continues to refuse to resign, is there any other way for his district to be represented in those meetings with him being absent? There really isn't. Um, we've taken, the council has taken every legal step available to it uh, to make clear our insistence that he resign. Um, there have been motions to that effect. I introduced a motion uh, calling uh, for a censure vote, which is I don't think ever happened in, in Los Angeles history. Um, he has been stripped of his committee assignments. Uh, there, there is really no other recourse that the council can take to remove him. He has to do that, and he has to do it for the best interests of his constituents because they're not being effectively served now. But more importantly than that, this hurting city, this city that's in pain right now, this city that feels torn apart by you know ethnic uh, division right now, uh, racial tensions that, that were caused by that meeting. Um, it, it, the only recourse for that, the only way to begin healing that is for this council to be completely separated from those who were involved in that conversation. And that means he must resign in the best interests of the city. What are your plans for returning to fully open to the public council meetings? Well, I'm eager to get back to normal uh, order as quickly as we can because the council has a tremendous amount of important priority work to move on, including uh, reforming the council itself, uh, doing the sorts of things that we need to do uh, to ensure that we're not going to be subjected to the kinds of things that happened in that meeting in the future. Uh, there's our work to, to reform redistricting, our work to reform the uh, ethics laws, our work to 
um, expand the council so that people will feel more represented and will have a better opportunity to have a say in their government. And then, of course, the, the ordinary work that the council has in responding to the significant needs of the people and responding to homelessness and the housing crisis and ensuring jobs creation, but, but ordinary services of government. If, but we cannot effectively do that until Kevin DeLeon uh, and Mr. Cedillo resign tomorrow. So if, if Kevin DeLeon continues to refuse to resign, and his term, of course, continues, unlike Gil Cedillo's, uh, into the next year and beyond, then um, you're, you're likely going to have protesters continuing to show up, uh, demanding that he resign. How are you going to be able to do those meetings if he does not resign? We have to, we have to figure out the way that we can do the people's business. But this is exactly why it is so incumbent upon Mr. DeLeon to resign, because that is a problem that he is causing, not his counsel, uh, not the protesters. He is causing that problem, and he must resign because of that. Apologies will not do. Um, it's not about parsing words, and maybe I should have said this a little differently, and I'm sorry that I didn't interfere with the racist comments that were being made. Um, he must resign to avoid the ongoing crisis that's being caused right now in the governance of Los Angeles. And and I, I just uh, I can't implore him strongly enough to do the right thing for Los Angeles and resign today. It sounds like you're at this point a little bit uncertain what to do if he doesn't resign. Is that is that accurate? Um, you know. It's each handling each day, um, you know, has new issues that come up. So I don't want to give you a broad stroke kind of answer to that. We will continue to do the work that we've already been doing this week and that we will continue to do. We will right this ship. We will make sure that the council operates in a way that regains uh, the confidence of the people of Los Angeles and that, that ensures that, uh, people of every community and every part of Los Angeles feel heard and respected and included. We will do that work. Um, but I, I have to say that Kevin DeLeon is making that work infinitely more difficult by his arrogant and selfish decision, uh, at least at this point, not to resign. And you know, I, I can only imagine that the, the next steps will probably include uh, a lot of that energy that we're hearing now uh, calling for his resignation, moving towards his actual recall from office. Um, but in any event, we as a council need to continue to, to do the work of the people. And a recall process is a long and involved one, of course. Thank you very much, Council President Paul Krikorian, joining us for the next several days. While Mayor Garcetti is traveling, Paul Krikorian is also the acting mayor of the city of Los Angeles. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Well, the wisdom of Kenny Rogers in The Gambler and wisdom which is echoed in the new book, Quit, 
the power of knowing when to walk away. And Annie Duke, the author of the book, certainly demonstrated her ability to judiciously fold them. She's a former professional poker player who won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game about a decade ago. She's author of the bestsellers Thinking in Bets and How to Decide, and she's the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit to empower students through decision skills education. Annie Duke, good to have you with us to talk about your new book, Quit. Thanks for having me. Well, I, the point that uh, is is the central theme here seems to be that uh, knowing when to walk away is a very important attribute to success, to fulfillment. And it's something that, in fact, we argue against culturally, that we look down on the idea of quitting or being a quitter. First of all, wh- where do you think that um, that idea comes from that to quit is to fail? Oh, I I think, Larry, that that's very deeply embedded in us. You know, we just have a a tremendous bias against quitting. Uh, A lot of it has to do with when we quit, that's the moment that we may go from failing to having failed. It's the moment that you're admitting defeat, that you are recognizing that you uh, can no longer recover the cause. And once we start something and we have a goal, which, you know, would be success that we're heading toward a falling short of that goal, it just feels really hard for us, even when the thing we're doing is not going particularly well. And we actually might find more happiness doing something else. And and that's why quitting is really a necessary component to success, because when what you're doing is not getting you to where you want to go, quitting and being able to switch to something that will get you to want to where you want to go is what's actually going to cause you to achieve success. The so-called great resignation during the time, particularly the early months of the pandemic has, has been looked at as, you know, cause for concern. Um, but it's interesting that it, it took something of that magnitude mm-hmm. to sort of counteract the biases that you write about in Quit that cause people to decide for the status quo instead of leaving and doing something that may well give them more more satisfaction. Uh, is, is there anything comparable that we've seen historically where people have quit en masse like we've seen during this time of COVID? I mean, I think quits are definitely the highest they've ever been. So I'm not sure that there is something particularly comparable. I think what's very interesting about the Great Resignation, and and I think you're right that we do, you know, sort of the narrative around it is that if it, it's negative, but it's actually a positive for the people who quit. And I think net positive for society, because what's better for the individual tends to be better for society, is that it wasn't like everybody just all of a sudden quit. It was very specifically people in the service sector. And this is where you can see what happens with these disruptions. Remember, when we start something like a job, we tend to get really stuck in it, even when we're not happy. Uh, There's a lot of forces preventing us from walking away from those things. Uh, It's very scary for us to sort of venture into the unknown and maybe start something new. But sometimes we're forced to stop. And that's what happened with the pandemic, particularly with the service sector. You know, hotels shut down, restaurants shut down, people were laid off or furloughed. uh, And so they were forced to stop. And in those forcing to stop moments where we allow ourselves to examine whether we're happy, we allow ourselves to examine our values, whether we really like what we're doing, we start to explore other opportunities. And now when we come back to the great reopening, it feels a little bit more like choosing what to start rather than quitting what you already did. And when they had that choice about whether to go back to what they were doing before, a lot of people said, no, I've had enough time to figure out that that wasn't making me happy. And they weren't quitting to do nothing. They were quitting to go take another opportunity that was available to them. And I'm not exactly sure why that's a bad thing. 
We're talking with the author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie Duke with us on Air Talk. If you have questions for her, we'd love to hear from you at 866-893-5722. You can email your thoughts and questions to atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. Similarly, if you tweet at Air Talk, please include your location along with your Twitter handle. We appreciate that very much. And if you had a particular point in your life where you had a very difficult decision to make about quitting something, I'd be interested to hear what it was that led you to finally make that decision, What, what, whether it was a leap of faith, what it was that precipitated that, or anything that went into that difficult decision, 866-893-KPECC. Uh, we should talk about some of the factors that keep us in place that you write about in Quit. One of them, uh, the well-known sunk cost fallacy. Please briefly describe that. Yeah, so the sunk cost fallacy is basically that once you've put time or effort or money or attention into something, uh, it biases you against quitting because you don't want to lose what you've already put into something. So we feel like, for example, if we've been in a job that if we quit, we'll have lost all of that time that we put into it, all of the training, the onboarding, getting to know the culture, uh, and we have this feeling of waste right? Like if I quit now, won't I have wasted my time? The reason why it's a fallacy is that what matters for a decision about whether you stick to something is whether it's worthwhile for you to continue going forward. In other words, is the job making you happy in comparison to other things you might be doing um, going forward? So what happens is because we feel like waste is a backward looking problem, like if I quit, I will have wasted my time. Uh, even though that time has already been spent, it causes us to waste more time going forward, sticking in dead-end jobs or relationships that are making us unhappy or pursuing projects that really aren't worth our time. For fear of having wasted the time we already spent, we waste more time going forward and losing endeavors. You also write about the status quo bias, the sort of devil you know uh, versus the unknown. I think that's another very common one for people to make. Well, I I think that this is really common, which is that, you know, you just talked about if you've taken a leap of faith, right? We think about quitting and starting something new as a leap of faith in a different way than we think about sticking with the thing that we're already doing being a leap of faith, (laughs) which it is, right? They're the same. We just don't think about those the same. So this has to do with status quo bias. We're much more tolerant of the idea that we might have a bad outcome uh, from the thing we're already doing, but really because we've already started it, then the thing we might switch to that we might have to start because that fear of loss, that feeling of a leap of faith, that fear that we might regret the choice really only gets recruited very strongly when we're starting something new. So I'm sure you've heard people who you've talked to, Larry, have been like, oh, I really am unhappy in my job. And you say, well, why don't you quit? And they say, well, what if I take a new job and I hate it? Or, you know, they're unhappy in a relationship and you say, well, why don't you break up? Well, but what if I'm unhappy if I'm alone or I don't find somebody new? And that's where you're getting that status quo bias problem because, of course, you know you're already unhappy in the thing you're doing. And if you switch to something new, there's at least a possibility of happiness. Uh, but we're so afraid of that sort of leap of faith that we won't do it. I love it. This just a great description of the status quo bias. And I, I love that my prompt for listener interactions exhibited the status quo bias. That's perfect. It's Air Talk on KPCC. We'll continue our conversation with Annie Duke, author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.
Speaking of arts events, I hope you'll come join me at the brand new Orange County Museum of Art. It is just opened, and we are going to christen it with the first broadcast from uh, Orange County Museum of Art. I'll be there uh, next Wednesday evening. We invite you to come join us. All the information is available by going to las.com. You can uh, scroll down. You'll see my picture right there with AirTalk, a summit of the arts in Orange County, an AirTalk live event. And I'm going to be joined by a who's who of the L.A. Orange County arts community. It's going to be wonderful. We'll be talking with those in the academic world. We'll be talking with those who create stage productions, visual arts curators. We're going to focus on many different arts nonprofits in Orange County. But we'd love to have you in the audience. If you live in Orange County or are close to the county at all, please come out and join us. The first time we've taken the show to the Orange County in several years because of COVID. So please come be with us. Again, all the ticket information at LAist.com and you'll find that toward the bottom of the page as you scroll, click on the event and you'll also see all the special guests. What do we have? What is that? Like 11 people be taking part in the conversation. Uh, We invite you to join us for that event in person and chance for you to see the brand new Orange County Museum of Art. I'm joined by the author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. Annie Duke is with us on Air Talk. Let me share some listener comments. Karen in Laguna Wood says, I was a nurse, really liked my job. Over the years, I saw a lot of people who became nurses and ended up hating it, but opted not to quit because they got so used to the security of it. Now, that's an excellent point. I- I've known so many lawyers over the years who, after investing all the time and money, of going to law school um, only to find out that they hated the career. And that's sort of that sunk cost fallacy, not wanting to back away, both because of, of uh, the financial implications of quitting, but also because of all the years and money that were invested in their their law degree. Maurice in West Hollywood said, I quit my acting pr- career. It's the most difficult decision, but doing so, I was able to find my real passion in wig making full time. Maurice, that's terrific. So you find you're still in the arts, but but doing it in a different way. And Hiju in Atwater Village says, I've been a teacher for 27 years and left my job last year because of the toxicity of the private school at which I taught. I took a job for less money, but I'm a lot happier now and I can spend more time with my family. Thanks so much. We're at 866-893-5722. You can also email us at ATCommentsAnd at kpcc.org. Please include your first name and your location. Annie, let's talk a bit about advice for rethinking the ways that we we determine whether to stay with something or or quitting. Um, When we're setting goals, for example, of something that we want, what is a better alternative than just saying, I'm going to accomplish this goal no matter what? What's a better way to approach it? Well, you have to, whenever we set a goal and goals are generally good, right? Like they motivate us to, uh, to achieve things, uh, faster with a higher probability that we'll actually get there. That's why we think about setting very clear detailed goals, for example, in our jobs or in our personal life, like health goals, right? The, the issue is when, um, the goal itself becomes the object of our desire in some sense. So, so for example, with the teacher who wrote in, um, she wanted to be a teacher. She wanted to be in education. So she takes a job. The goal now becomes to be successful in that job. But when she switched, what she realizes, no, there's other things that I could be doing that would allow me to take that job, uh, that it would allow me rather to achieve the the broader goal that I have of uh, educating. Um, and I don't need to just have the goal of being successful in this particular job. So whenever we set a goal for ourselves, we always want to have unlesses associated with it. In other words, I'm taking this job. I really want to be successful and I'll stick to it unless and figure out what those are in advance. So uh, it might be unless the culture becomes toxic, unless I find that this job is no longer fulfilling for me. So notice you're thinking ahead, not about what you've already spent, but about what your future happiness is going to be. And you're saying, imagine that I'm unhappy in the future. What are the signals that I might see 
that would tell me that things aren't going well and I really ought to walk away. And those would be the unlesses that you would attach to those, those goals. And it turns out that when we think in advance and we attach these unlesses or what I call kill criteria um, as we start things, that we become better at reacting rationally when we do see those negative signals and then we don't end up getting as stuck. And it's just different than we kind of rely on our intuition to say, well, if I get into a situation and I'm, I'm unhappy, then I'll leave. But it turns out that we don't do that. We have to kind of think in advance about what might make us unhappy, uh, do that at the start of it, and then we can react to it better when we actually see those signs that we should walk away. We're talking with Annie Duke, author of Quit, The Power of Knowing When to Walk Away. You know, with entrepreneurs who have been extremely successful, one of the things that stood out to me, and I'd be curious your your thoughts, is that they don't get super caught up in any one particular initiative until it really proves itself. And that they have tremendous, you know, focus and dedication, but it's sort of overall on on being successful as opposed to putting all the regs say this thing is make or break. And for people who who you know just put everything into the one thing before it proves itself, I see them being much more challenged. And I, I wonder if you can speak to that. Yeah. So well first of all, in terms of um in terms of entrepreneurs, they've sort of built in this idea of agile development. So they throw a lot of spaghetti against the wall. They try to figure out what sticks. They quit all the rest. And that allows them to really focus their time and energy on the things that are working, which is really what we want to do in life, right? Like we want to reduce the time that we're spending on things that aren't working, uh, increase the time that we're spending on things that are. But even for entrepreneurs, once they find that thing that does stick to the wall and they start pursuing that as their main product, uh, it also, even when the world tells them that things start to turn in a bad direction, they also find it hard to give those things up. So uh, even entrepreneurs are not immune to this, but they are better at it, which which is helpful. And that's what we're trying to do. Um, but we can take a page from what the entrepreneurs are doing when we enter into any project and try to think about how can we find the answer for whether this is something that's worthwhile to us. Uh, as quickly as possible. And I like to use this um, mental model called monkeys and pedestals, which comes from Astro Teller at X, which is Google's in-house innovation hub. And it basically goes like this. If you decide that you want to train a monkey to juggle flaming torches while standing on a pedestal in the town square, don't build the pedestal first. You need to figure out if you can train the monkey to juggle. Why? Because you know you can build the pedestal already. And if you can't train the monkey to juggle, then there's no point, right? There's no point in building the pedestal. Now, interestingly enough, we can relate this to the California bullet train, which we know has been in the news recently. Um, As you know, Larry, they, what is the track that they started building? They built track on flat land in the central Valley and actually pretty out loud and proud because it was easier. So uh, between I think Madeira and, um, uh, Fresno, and then they approved track between Bakersfield and Merced, and then between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. Now we know that the budget has exploded from 33 billion to well over 100 billion at this point. And why was that? Well, it's because they didn't do monkeys and pedestals. What are the monkeys when you're trying to build the California bullet train? Well, it's the Diablo Range and the Chappie Mountains, the mountains to the north of LA and to the south of San Francisco. Pretty hard engineering task to figure out, can we blast through these mountains in a seismically active area so that we can have a train run through those safely or even safely blast through them in the first place? But they started building pedestals first. They didn't figure out if they could train that monkey to go first. And you can see the really bad effects of that where now they're stuck in it and we get back to that sunk cost problem. They don't want to quit because they've already spent $9 billion of taxpayer money and they'll have wasted yeah. the taxpayer's money if they keep going. Meanwhile, they're planning to spend like $100 billion more, which seems like a bigger waste if you don't know if you can blast through the mountains. It's a clear example of sunk cause, no question. Annie Duke, thank you so much. Appreciate your being with us and talking about your new book. For having me, Larry. This was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Quit, the power of knowing when to walk away. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you so much for your generous support. We have a 
big dollar amount for this hour, but uh, given the faithfulness we saw yesterday and some other days, I, I'm very optimistic that you'll make that call. We appreciate it so much. Well, uh, you might have seen that the Biden administration is prepared to hold the first ever lease sale for offshore wind energy on the West Coast. The announcement was made two days ago. The sale is scheduled for December 6th, and it'll target areas in the Pacific off central and northern California. This is the first U.S. auction for commercial-scale floating offshore wind energy development. Now, they're able to do, uh, off the East Coast, for example, tethered uh, wind turbines to generate power. Uh, but here off the California coast, because there's such a drop-off, uh, it's going to need to be, in most cases, floating wind power production. Joining us to talk about the challenges that are involved and how much potential there is for electricity generation off the coast is Sammy Roth, energy reporter for the Los Angeles time. Sammy, great to have you with us. Hey, Larry. Happy to be here. You've uh, written in the Times, of course, about a variety of different wind-generating uh, prospects, uh, including proposals for the Midwest and, uh, you know, a big grid that would bring all kinds of wind power from other parts of the country. What is the potential for offshore generation? Well, the, the potential is really huge. I mean, if, if you really built it out to, you know, all that the wind could take out there, you've got a Tens and tens of thousands of, of megawatts, uh, which is, you know, a lot more electricity than California actually uses. So it's, it's not going to, you know, get built out to that extent. But, um, if you take some of these areas off the coast that are, that are being leased and, you know, build, build some turbines out there, uh, this is energy that could not only help California get off of fossil fuels, but actually play a really, uh, interesting and important role in, in keeping the lights on after dark when all that solar power goes away, which is a problem that California has been having. What about the costs involved? How how does the investment in offshore wind platforms compare to doing it uh, on land or, or compared to other uh, forms of renewable energy? Well, it's definitely more expensive right now, and, and that has to do with the fact that it's a much more nascent technology. So, I mean, on, onshore wind is, is pretty common in the United States now. You, you know, you've seen it if you've driven from L.A. to Palm Springs or, or up to the Bay Area off of I-5 and you know, it, with, with offshore wind, there's there's a lot of this stuff built around the world now. It's getting bigger. But like you said, most of this has been done in places where the seafloor is, is sort of shallow enough that you can just bolt down the wind turbines right right into the seafloor. Whereas in California, what what's being planned here, uh, it's been done in a few places, but it's just much rarer. We actually have to have these cables tethering these floating platforms to the seafloor. So that that is more expensive right now. It hasn't been done in a lot of places. But you know, as I was saying, you sort of weigh the costs and benefit. The the benefit of this offshore resource relative to what you could get right now from cheap solar power or cheap onshore wind power is that this is this is wind that blows a lot more hours of the day. These things would have capacity factors of probably around fifty percent, meaning that wind is blowing about fifty percent of the day, which is quite high. And really critically, the winds off coast uh, off the shore here pick up into the evening hours which is right at that period when during these summer heat waves, when all the solar goes offline in the evening, when, when we've had trouble keeping the lights on in California. I just wondered, though, Sammy, given the higher cost of this, are utilities going to be willing to purchase enough of it, given given the cost per kilowatt? Um, or will they only look to this, say, in emergencies when they don't have enough solar power after it gets dark? That's a really good question. I mean, the the reality that we're facing is that there's going to be there's going to have to be something that we need to keep the lights on when the sun's not shining and and the wind is not blowing here on land. And there are different options for that. Offshore wind power is one of them. Nuclear is one of them. Geothermal power, more batteries, more types of energy storage. Uh, offshore wind isn't the only technology that can play that role, but across the board, this stuff is going to be more expensive than just sort of the simple solar and, and on land wind that we've got now. And, and one just interesting little tidbit, the, uh, a bunch of California state agencies that, that are in charge of energy and climate stuff did a study, um, which I think came out last year, which looked at what is the cheapest way for California to get to 100% clean energy by 2035, which is the legal mandate that we have right now. And that study found that the cheapest pathway was going to involve 10,000 megawatts of offshore wind power. That's an estimate. You know, things could change, costs could change for different technologies, but 
that, that's what they found at the time. And in fact, that might have been an underestimate based on the way they designed the study. Well, and that's uh, this this prod. These leases here are almost half that amount. I, I think it's four point five uh, gigawatts that would be. Involved. Yeah, four point five gigawatts. That's thirty five hundred megawatts. And uh, that that's a lot. I mean, when we when we had those uh, that risk of, of rolling blackouts at the end of August, beginning of September, when it was just so hot and we were getting those flex alerts. The peak power demand on the electric grid uh, those days was, was around 51, 52,000 megawatts. So when you talk about four or 5,000 megawatts here, that's a big deal, especially if it can be on in the evening. Yeah, I just did the math wrong. I guess it would be about, what, about a sixth of what would be required by 2030. So uh, to do this, Sammy Roth, energy reporter for the Los Angeles Times, also with us from Stanford University, professor of civil and environmental engineering and director of Stanford's atmosphere energy program, Mark Z. Jacobson. Professor, so good to have you with us. Can you describe how uh, these deep water wind turbines are, are fixed in position? How do they do that? Well, I was first point out that there's a actually a large amount of offshore wind available in places where you can have uh, the wind turbine poles going right down to the ocean floor. It's really beyond that that you know there's there's actually about four or five gigawatts worth of wind, um, especially up north uh, near Cape Mendocino, but all actually all along the coast. Um, so it's really beyond the five gigawatts that you can actually use fixed floor fixed bottom turbine uh, fixed bottom. Uh, hubs where you have to use floating. And the floating, they basically have uh, tethers you know, that go down. So instead of having the actual uh, turbine a turbine tower going all the way down to the seafloor, they'll have a floating platform, and then they'll have like four or more tethers going down to, their, to the seafloor. And yeah. so they don't have to actually dig into the seafloor for the, the actual uh, turbine towers. And given the great depth we're talking about, that's all done robotically, I assume. Um, yeah, it's not clear. I mean, there's, well, first of all, the depths are not necessarily, some of these depths are just 200 meters because you can use fixed bottom, uh, turbines down to about 50 meters. And so it just, anything beyond 50 meters, oh, okay. depth, then you're really, um, starting to use floating. And so most of the, you can get like 60 gigawatts of wind down out to about 200 meters depth of California. And w- what kind of labor is required to operate these turbines? You know, we see the ones in the in the desert, and I know there are people that maintain them, that go up those towers and all, but um, what sort of requirement is there for for um, employees to deal with those, those turbines? Well, it's mostly... Uh, for repairs now, the actually repair time for onshore turbines is like one to two or three percent of the hours of the year. The downtime for repairs, offshore is maybe two to three or four percent. So it's only maybe one percent more, but it's rougher conditions, and so um, so it's a little. You know, not only have to then take a boat to get out there, usually, or a helicopter or something, but using a boat. Uh, but then you know, it's, it's it's pretty windy out there. Offshore wind is is faster than onshore wind. And I'll point out that you know the offshore wind in the summer is actually the fastest of all of all the seasons. Um, summer you get about 10 meters per second offshore wind at 100 meters hub height, versus other seasons it's about 8 meters per second average. And those winds are really fast, so you have to be careful. Um, but it's only you know, they're only operating the repair is only being operated on a given turbine maybe 2% of the year. And how big are these turbines? Uh, you know, we've seen them get bigger and bigger out in the Southern California passes and, and desert areas. Um, would these be comparable in size to those? Uh, no, they're much bigger. Um, so two, so most of them offshore are have 100 meters hub height, so they actually extend, and then they have, might have like a 77 to a 100 meter blade, but actually some of these um, diameter blade, and some of these they are going up to 200 meters now. Whoa. The tallest <laughs> turbine in the world is is even over 200 meters hub height, and so they're going to be somewhere between 100 meters and 200 meters. Whereas the onshore winds, even though the, the hub heights are the same, we're talking okay, just in terms of power. Like most of the onshore turbines are like one to three megawatts in size, whereas the offshore ones are getting up to 15 megawatts. So they're, you know, five times more power for the same turbine. So you need fewer turbines to generate more power. And plus, offshore wind is much faster than onshore wind. 
and it's more steady, and it's more peak coincident. We're almost out of time, but just quick question for you then. Are cables laid to shore to where uh, where the power is is sent through a fixed cable like that? Yes, under, under the water, there's a transmission cable that's linked to the shore. All right. That goes along the bottom, I assume, uh, to try and keep yeah. it safe. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Our, our two guests, Mark Z. Jacobson, Stanford University professor, and Sammy Roth, who reports on energy for the L.A. Times and does it quite impressively, covering a wide range of different aspects of energy. It's Air Talk on KPECC. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Josie Huang. LA's Chinatown is a neighborhood in flux. I tell the stories of recent Asian American immigrants and families who've been here for generations. I can never forget where I come from. How they navigate being Asian and American. But her landlord has ordered the tenants, mostly Asian immigrants, to move out so she can renovate the property and how that shapes LA's future. LAist, independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Thank you for your generous support, which is maximized thanks to the dollar for dollar match from our trustee right now. I hope you've been enjoying a brand new weekly feature of Air Talk, which are television reviews with noted critics, two of them at a time, coming on and to share their favorites. We begin by talking about the new shows that have just released within the past week or so that are coming maybe even tomorrow. Uh, and then we talk with our critics about some of their favorites that maybe you missed. This is all in an effort to help us uh, make our way through the incredible volume of quality television available from streaming services and on broadcast TV as well. Very pleased to be joined today by the chief TV critic at Variety, Daniel uh, Dario. Also with us is Liz Shannon Miller, senior entertainment uh, editor at Consequence and a board member of the television Critics Association. Liz, welcome back. Very nice to have you with us. Daniel, great to have you with us as well. Hello. Thank you. So let's start, Liz, with Amazon Prime Series uh, from scratch, starring Zoe Saldana. Attica Locke is the creator of this series. What is From Scratch about? Uh, well, first of all, I'll note that it's actually with, uh, it's, I just, I just caught this myself. It's actually a Netflix series. It's premiering tomorrow and it's essentially about a, a young woman who goes to Italy to kind of discover herself and fall in love and then, you know, carries forward with, you know, kind of her love story with this Italian man she meets and how their lives together interact. It's, uh, the thing with, the thing with From Scratch is that it's not like, it's not going to be the best show you've ever seen in your life, but it is a very fun, engaging rom-com that's very much in line with Under the Tuscan Sun, other, uh, you know, if food plays a big role. So there's a lot of food porn in it. It's, 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 it's kind of, it's very much the TV equivalent of chiclet, but sometimes that really just scratches an itch that you want to have scratched. And it's, it's from scratch, appropriate title. For- yeah, I didn't even realize that I was doing it. All right. Uh, on Netflix, Zoe Saldana stars. It's rated TVMA, and the series uh, releases tomorrow on Netflix. Daniel, yeah, that MA is that, sorry. That MA is for very sexy scenes. Oh, uh, or food, food porn. You said so. That's yeah. <laughs> uh, right. Also on Netflix, uh, also releasing tomorrow is The Watcher, starring Naomi Watts, Bobby Cannavale, and Mia Farrow, uh, and that's created by Ian Brennan. And and the prolific Ryan Murphy. Daniel, what did you think of The Watcher? So um, The Watcher is actually available now to stream. It came out late last week, and I had a lot of critiques of this. I do think it's well worth watching for people who are interested in true crime stories. It is based on a New York Magazine story about a 
couple that purchases a New Jersey home and immediately starts getting poison pen letters from an anonymous person who calls himself their watcher. Uh, this series amps up the supernatural element of the story in, in ways that sometimes in that Ryan Murphy way feel a little bit implausible, but it will suck you in. It's certainly very watchable, and the cast, including, as you pointed out, Mia Farrow and Jennifer Coolidge, there's a very strong supporting cast. Yeah. So there's good stuff in what is kind of a seven-episode show that could have been a two-hour movie. <laughs> right. The Watcher, again, uh, dropped last week on Netflix. It's rated TVMA. Uh, is that because of violence or just intense content, would you say, uh, Daniel? I would say it's it's moody and intense content. <laughs> All right. Uh, also, uh, Documentary Now, which is a parody of uh, the current obsession with documentaries on IFC Channel. Helen Mirren, Fred Armisen, Bill Hader star, and uh, they are the co-creators as well with Seth Meyers of, of the series. Liz, what, what do you think of Documentary Now? Oh, Documentary Now is so much fun. Uh, it is, it, you know, like you said, it's, uh, it is, these are, every episode is a parody of a pre-existing, iconic to some degree documentary, uh, from the past. Uh, and, you know, uh, with season four, they've, you know, they, they, because it's an essentially an anthology show with Helen Mirren hosting every episode as the long running host of documentary now, one of the best jokes of it is that, uh, officially this is season 53 because the, because sh- their version of do- this exists in an alternate universe where the show has been running for 50, over 50 years. Uh, but there's some great people involved with the new season. Uh, you know, Kate Blanchett has been in episodes before and she's in a new one this time. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård plays is a big role in one it's uh you know it's it's very it's it's very specifically for a certain type type of person especially the type of person who really loves you know documentaries uh but the amount of care and detail they put into recreating these these old these prod these uh these films is remarkable documentary now in its fourth season on IFC rated TV 14. It's season 11, speaking of Ryan Murphy, of American Horror Story NYC anthology series. Uh, Dennis O'Hare, Leslie Grossman, Billy Lord star in season 11. Brad Falchuk and Ryan Murphy, the creators here. Liz, what do you think of this new season? Uh, it just premiered last night and there weren't any screeners. So I stayed up late oh. to watch. Uh, it was quite spooky. Uh, it, the see, I, I say it to watch largely because, uh, there's always a lot of secrecy around American Horror Story when they launch a new season. This one is set in the early eighties. It's, uh, there, it's very focused on what it was like to be a gay man in New York City at that time. Uh, the, the lead, the, the actual lead characters, uh, Include, uh, Russell Tovey as a detective, a detective who's in the closet, uh, but is investigating some mysterious, uh, murders. And, uh, based on, based on what I've seen so far of the, like the first two episodes, like it's definitely looking like a very interesting political season just because of the time period. And, uh, if, if, if AIDS isn't a major part of the storytelling, it will be, it, it pro- you know, like, explicitly it'll definitely be like a metaphorical undercurrent of, of the action i mean essentially at this point it's not totally clear what's going on but that's ha- you know in, if you're a fan of american horror story sometimes that's half the fun is just figuring <laughs> out what what exactly ryan murphy is doing to us right now american horror story nyc the 11th season of the popular series on fx which also streams on hulu rated tv ma and as we just heard from liz the first uh, episode of the new season just debuted last night let me reintroduce our critics who are joining us for our weekly television review segment they're liz shannon miller of consequence where she's senior entertainment editor and also with us daniel Dodario, who's chief tv critic at Variety. Uh, next up for our critics review is The Peripheral. It's streaming on Amazon Prime Video, starring Chloe Grace Moretz, Gary Carr, uh, created by Jonathan Nolan, Scott Smith, and Scott, uh, Scott B. Smith. I don't know if that's a typo or, or the same, uh, different people. Um, and that has just dropped. Liz, tell us about The Peripheral, please. 
Uh, yeah, the peripheral is based on a William Gibson novel. And if you don't know who William Gibson is, uh, know that most of the science fiction you've been watching for the last 20 something years has been directly influenced by him. He's a, he, you know, he wrote the original Neuromancer, that sort of thing. And, uh, so this is, it, it basically, there's a lot. If, if you're interested in another take on the near future and also the not, the much further future from the creators of Westworld, this is the show for you. There's a lot of really, exciting world building and you know mythology that gets built into the the show right from the, right away uh because it's it takes place essentially in like the 19 the 2030s uh where in, in a rural area of west virginia which is kind of you know despite all this future technology is pretty run down and in uh you know one of the one of the technological advances is really immersive uh video game uh software and which in this ca- in the case of the this, this these characters uh transports a young woman to essentially a hundred years further into the future in a post apocalyptic london uh which is trying to figure which has found found ways to uh, that post-apocalyptic london has found ways to communicate with the past and they're hoping to do in doing so that they can maybe you know course correct some things that happened in the future the peripheral is the series starring chloe grace moretz it's uh in release uh starting tomorrow and it's unrated it's streaming on amazon prime video daniel please tell us about the netflix series uh the game show adventure the mole yeah, so The Mole uh, was, at the turn of the century, it was an ABC reality show at the dawn of mainstream reality TV, and now it is back. It's on Netflix. It's um, launched some, though not all, of the episodes. It's a mystery, a real-life mystery, where a group of people have to work together to um, complete challenges. Every challenge they complete, they earn money for the group, but there's one member who's secretly working to sabotage them, and the suspicion uh, grows and grows as the group tries to figure out who it is that is secretly uh, messing things up on purpose in order to sabotage the game. Interesting people. Uh, it's a very dynamic challenges, a lot of fun to watch the challenges, and uh, it's a real guessing game. I think that Netflix did a pretty good job with this. All right. The Mole rebooted for Netflix uh, years ago on network television. It's rated TVMA. I don't think it would have been rated TVMA, Daniel, back in its network TV uh, airing, would it? <laughs> yeah, I think there's some salty language. There's language you might not want to on, on network TV. All right. That released last week, actually uh, two weeks ago. The Mole is streaming on Netflix. We'll have more with our critics, Daniel Diderio and Liz Shannon Miller coming up every week on Air Talk. Every Thursday, we bring you reviews of brand new streaming and broadcast television series, as well as some picks from our critics of things that have been out and might not have gotten big attention. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. I'm looking forward to Thursdays particularly now because I have the honor of being joined by two uh, top uh, critics each week uh, who cover television. This week, we're very pleased to have joining us on Air Talk Daniel Diderio, who's the chief TV critic at Variety, and Liz Shannon Miller, senior entertainment editor at Consequence. She's also a member of the board of the Television Critics Association, that national group. Next up, both of our critics are going to tell us about the documentary The Vow. It's in its second season on HBO. Just uh, launched a second season a couple of weeks ago. This takes a look at uh, what was originally a self-improvement group, Nexium, but ended up uh, with all kinds of criminal charges around the founder of uh, the organization, Keith Renier. Uh, tell us, please, about the second season of The Vow, Daniel. Um, sure. So, just as you say, uh, it focuses on on Nexium, which began its life as a self help group and then uh, devolved or developed into a group that uh, was found to exert coercive control over uh, its acolytes' lives. Women were branded. Women um, were had their ca- caloric intake severely restricted. And the project of the vow in this second season is to kind of investigate 
the mentality of people who are complicit in this and kind of ask why, why do we do these things? Why, how does this happen? Um, what makes people fall under the sway of charismatic cult leaders? And, you know, these are really fascinating questions and, um, you know, it doesn't always have the answers, but it looks really hard and considers these questions. So I, I really thought this was pretty excellent. That's great. I mean, it's, a, it's as you say, Daniel. It's a, it's a question that you know we've we've asked for for perhaps since uh, humans have existed. What calls people to you? Know, what what leads them to do this? And uh, sounds like fascinating examination of the Val Liz. What did you think of the the second season? Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt the same as Daniel. I thought it was really engrossing. And I think like a big factor in this season is that um, I I remember just like shout, uh, wanting to shout at people, they got Nancy uh, because uh, that they actually bring in uh, like they have at least one or two more people who are involved with in, involved in interviews who are like who are major players within the organization. They even have. Uh, they even actually have representation for the voices of those who don't think that Keith Raniere should be in jail. Uh, and that's a, that's a really fascinating aspect to add to the conversation. Like, I think there, there's, it was, the vow was a fascination when it premiered originally in 2020. And I think it, this is just a, a really solid follow up to everything that kept us engrossed back then. The Vow is on HBO Max, uh, rated TVMA, and uh, just releasing earlier this week in the second season. And we want to revisit House of the Dragon, uh, based on George R. R. Martin's Fire and Blood, set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones. It's streaming on HBO Max and airing on HBO's uh, cable channels as well, rated TVMA. Daniel, what have you thought of House of of the dragon. Yeah, I'm glad to get the opportunity to talk about this because um, my opinions have kind of evolved over time. I think that the show is definitely the most fast-paced and fun show on uh, premium cable right now. It never slows down. Uh, for that reason, though, I also sometimes uh, I'm almost grateful that the season is about to be over because. It's so unrelenting, so full of twists and turns, so violent, so explicit, so uh, so everything, so melodramatic, that it can feel a little bit as though they're throwing everything at the screen. And um, I think that there's a lot of good stuff here just because there's a lot of stuff here. And overall, I think people who are fans of the world of Game of Thrones will find a lot to like. Uh, but I do think it's a pretty overwhelming uh, show. House of the Dragon on HBO Max. Liz? Yeah, I think the thing I've... The thing initially I was really drawn to with House of the Dragon was the fact that it wasn't playing... It wasn't. It didn't play like a soap opera. It played like a real historical drama. It played like these were real historical events that were being documented for the screen. And I, I, I think that, that, that hasn't really gone away and I've still really enjoyed that approach. It, like Daniel said, there is a lot going on and it, you know, there have been multiple time jumps just ex- accelerating us through a, a large portion of, uh, a large portion of Westeros history. And so I think the finale will be really interesting just to see not just how how the uh you know the big dramas of the season get wrapped up but also how you know what we can potentially expect from season 2 uh, and of seasons beyond that theoretically house of the dragon on hbo and hbo max uh tvma and uh it getting huge huge numbers for hbo as you'd expect and finally to talk about uh streaming on disney plus and or part of the star wars universe starring diego luna stellan skarsgård genevieve o'reilly tony gilroy is the creator of it liz tell us what you think of Andor, please? Yeah, I think uh, when I was last on the on your show, I got to talk about being slightly annoyed with the episodes, the way episodes are structured, how they don't really, they kind of don't really end necessarily, just kind of flow into the next one, and uh, that that hasn't really changed. But I have been really enjoying the speed at which they're moving through plot. They're getting through a lot of different developments and. 
also really kind of showcasing all the different all the different uh storylines that are going on as essentially we're getting a sneak peek at the early days of the rebellion i think like this uh, uh in episode 7 uh which had a huge cast uh when you l- watch the when i watched the closing credits i was uh, delighted to find that the that you know you know diego luna playing the title character uh, didn't actually appear on the first page of, uh, the credits because, uh, they, the cast, the cast list was in order of appearance and he didn't make an appearance until after a lot of other people. But that just goes to show how the show is really trying to create an entire portrait of a, of a world, of a, of a universe rather than really focusing in on this one man's journey. And, you know, Maybe we'd want more of that one man's journey down the line, but for right now, this is actually becoming a really interesting approach to doing Star Wars on TV. That's great. We're talking about the Disney Plus streaming series, Andor, starring Diego Luna, uh, and uh, it's been out there for uh, just about a month or so, prequel to Star Wars Rogue One. I want to thank our critics for joining us. That was Liz Shannon Miller, Senior Entertainment Editor at Consequence. Liz, we'll look forward to having you back. It's a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. And Daniel D'Addario, Chief TV Critic at Variety. Daniel, we appreciate it so much and also look forward to having you join us in the future. We hope you'll be able to. I look forward to that as well. Thank you so much. So our, our pleasure to be able to talk to two terrific critics every week on Air Talk with them talking us through the shows they're particularly excited about, even ones that are new that maybe they're not so jazzed on, but to warn us in advance about those as well. Very much like Film Week, which tomorrow comes your way at 11 o'clock right here on KPCC. And we have some really interesting films to talk about. George Clooney and Julia Roberts reteam in Ticket to Paradise. Uh, romantic comedy. We also have a comedic drama from Martin McDonough, the playwright and filmmaker. His new one, The Banshees of Inna Sharon. Also Black Adam, which is an action fantasy sci-fi film starring Dwayne Johnson. Those are just the three to get us start. And we have a bunch more as well. That's tomorrow morning, 11 o'clock, the final day of our fall member drive. It'll be film week here on KPCC. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.